Hawkins Green. I'm Anton, here with my co-host Shelby, to discuss a variety of topics from across the sustainability universe. Shelby, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing really well. I'm wearing one of my favorite t-shirts. Looks really cool. Thank you. It's from Big Bend National Park. Where's that? Uh, it's in Texas, which oh, is where okay. I'm here from. Texas this, uh, Texas that. I know, I know. But I love this national park, and it's actually nowhere near Austin. <laughs> it's like a 10 or 12 hour drive from okay. Austin. That's a big state. Yeah, it is <laughs> enormous. Um, but I like being able to represent the national parks that I visited through my apparel. And then also, whenever I go to a national park, I collect a patch from each park. That's really cool. But I haven't figured out what to do with them yet. So if you've got any ideas, let me know. Do the jean jacket. Oh, that's a really good idea. Yeah. I'm going to have to learn how to sew. I'm like kind of, I like, uh, yeah, I have a lot of patches that I've been meaning to sew on my jean jacket. We'll have to have a, a sewing day yes. so we can do yeah. all our patches together. Yes. So you said you haven't been to Big Bend. We've no. got a national park right here, Cuyahoga Valley. So yeah. you spend time in that one. Yeah, it's it's awesome. That's actually the only national park I've been to. Really? Um, I'd like to see many, many more. I'd like to see all of them, but uh, yeah, I just haven't made it out there yet. So. Yeah. Well, listen, I love national parks. I'm kind of a fangirl in the way that a lot of people are, but controversial opinion, I think they get overhyped, not because they aren't wonderful, but because state parks and local parks are so incredible. Yeah, they are. And so mm -hmm. the idea that like you have to be at national parks to see incredible nature, I think is just like throwing shade at your local park or like the wildlife management area that you went to to go foraging recently. Yeah, those are all cool too. Uh, yeah. National parks are... Awesome, but you know, if sometimes you miss those hidden gems with the, the state parks and whatnot, so. Totally, yeah. I'm curious, you've been to Cuyahoga Valley. Yeah. What's next on your list? Like where would you really, really wanna go? Oh man, I would really just wanna go like out west to Yellowstone. Yeah. Like I've just never been there. And Basic, it, I'm kidding. I'm yeah, kidding. no, but I mean, <laughs> it's, it's definitely on the bucket list, you know, that's gotta be it. But yeah. Alaska too, so yeah. There's a lot of good options out There's there. There's good options. I've been to, several but one of the standouts for me was Shenandoah because it's just trees it's just so many just like standing on the hill yeah. and looking out at the trees so that's one of my favorites but that's a little different than what we're going to be talking about today yeah. so want to transition in yeah it's it's quite different today we're going to be doing uh an episode that's quite heavy on intersectional environmentalism i'm excited to get into it yeah yeah so uh, Wayside Family and Youth, Youth and Family rather, wrote a blog for Earth Day not, not too long ago. And they were highlighting what it is to be an intersectional environmentalist. Okay, tell me like I have no idea what it yeah. is. Yeah. So, well, we know that an environmentalist stands for a lot of things. It's about being more sustainable, uh, getting cleaner energy, making sure that people are protected. Intersectional environmentalists, it really focuses on black and brown voices, people mm -hmm. of color, um, the BIPOC community. Uh, making sure that these people are protected because oftentimes they're the ones that are bearing the burden of climate change and these dirty industries. Let me give you a stat really quick, Shelby. Mm -hmm. In 2018, an air quality report was published by American Journal of Public Health. Their research found that non-white communities had 1.28 times higher of a burden of particulate matter. And particulate matter, for the viewers and listeners that don't know, those are uh, chemicals that are dispersed into the air uh, by a chemical industry. Maybe it's just like soot or ash, but it's just not good to breathe that in. Absolutely. Really bad for lung quality. Cleveland, actually, Northeast Ohio, our county that we live in, Cuyahoga, has some of the worst air quality in the state. Wow. Um, I was actually at the... Um, 
Health Policy Institute of Ohio's recent conference, and they talked about environmental air quality in particular, but also water quality being a huge priority, Um, not just because we had high rates of issues in these areas in the state, but also because there were such massive disparities between white communities and BIPOC communities, and also low-income communities compared to higher-income communities. And we can trace this back historically to where we've intentionally marginalized particular groups and regions and put them in higher contact with industry that someone in a wealthier and probably whiter neighborhood is just not going to come into contact with. Yeah, that's exactly right. So like a buttoned up suburban neighborhood that maybe pays a lot of taxes, you're not really going to see these coal plants or injection wells or uh, coal facility, any of these industries in their backyard, right? You're going to see a lot of these in like urban areas or poor rural areas. Uh, An example is uh, just like three years ago or so, I was in Slavic Village at this one bar called Gino's, and they are right next to the uh, steel plant that's right on the river, and you can like actually see the ash like flying towards you on a windy day, like from the steel plant. Like you're just experiencing like this toxic soot and ash like blowing your way. It's wild. Yes, and people in the suburbs would never experience that. Exactly, and that's also a we're t- Slavic Village being a neighborhood in Cleveland. Yes, thank um, you. Is like <laughs> it's a lower income neighborhood and very mixed demographically yeah. and becoming even more. Uh, BIPOC uh, like majority yeah. every day. Yeah. Um, so it's it's not an accident that this right. happens. Like zoning creates this, um, whether that's about where you can build homes and also where you can put industry. And that's just talking about the particulate matter that you mentioned. The same thing happens in like access to clean water, clean and healthy food, all of that jazz. Yeah, and so obviously envir- intersectional environmentalism it really ties into public health, making sure that people are safe and healthy. So how can we be uh, maybe more conscious about how we can be intersectional environmentalists? Uh, Well, we know, of course, we've already talked about it. These dirty industries happen in places of lower income, non-white communities. Uh, And we often think of climate change as like this great equalizer, like, oh, it affects all of us. But something that we have to keep in mind as environmentalists and as activists and as people on this podcast mm-hmm. is climate change is going to affect us all differently, varying degrees. So maybe your people in the suburbs of Northeast Ohio are going to be less affected by climate change than maybe people who are climate refugees and having to move further north to escape heat waves and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. When we talk about extreme temperatures, that's going to affect nations that are already hotter, like in the global south, where we've already disinvested, colonized, etc. So you're right, it's not a great equalizer. It It will affect all of us, and we should all be concerned because we share one planet. But you and I are going to experience it differently than someone living in a place that has less access to water like we do in Northeast Ohio, or someone who is living in a heavily industrialized zone, even in our own community. Yeah, and to add to that, as white environmental activists, we have to be really careful to make sure that we are listening to voices of people in non-white communities and making sure that we're taking their uh, health into consideration, their opinion into consideration. A lot of people, I think, when they think of an environmental activist, they maybe think of like some tall white dude with glasses and like a Patagonia vest. But there are black uh, activists. There are uh, activists of all kinds, shapes, sizes, colors, sexual orientation. And we have to make sure that we're hearing all of that and making decisions based on everybody's view. Yeah, I'm really interested in community-engaged research and community 
voice as the driving factor. So it's it's not even just that BIPOC uh, activists exist. It's that they're often at the forefront because yeah. they've experienced these issues firsthand That's in right. a way that uh, traditionally and historically white or wealthy environmental activists just haven't. That seems more like something that we see on the news that we learned in school versus someone who grew up in a neighborhood where they could see that they were experiencing particulate matter that a neighborhood down the street was not. Um, in Cleveland, yeah. like in a lot of cities, we experience massive segregation. Yeah. Um, and there's a community that's less than a mile apart on the east side where there's a 10 year age gap in the life expectancy. That's crazy. Hugely different and a lot of that has to do with environmental health. Um, I was talking to a friend who actually is a BIPOC activist here in Cleveland and I remember her talking about when you walk through my community, you just see trash on the ground. And I don't think it's because this wealthier community is coming out and picking up their trash on Saturday mornings. It's because it's been disinvested in. Yeah. Um, and it makes you feel like trash. So yeah, we, especially as white people who are leading a podcast like this and talking about these issues, have to be really aware of those intersections. Yeah, 100%. And just like once more, one small anecdote before we yeah. wrap up this segment. Uh, we've talked about Sobe before. Sobe is a facility in Youngstown, Ohio, where they are trying to go through with a plastics burning plant. And uh, I just wanted to Do shout. You mean them. advanced recycling? Advanced recycling. <laughs> Greenwash alert. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> so uh, what I'm what I was wanted to say was the uh, uh, people of color are at the forefront of that movement. They are people that are effectively uh, are are uh, sorry. They are directly affected yeah. if this plant were to go in and start burning plastics. And so although the organization has white leadership, it is good that uh, the people of color are being listened to and heard. And uh, we're, we're still trying to work with them as Buckeye Environmental Network to make sure that we have some more people of color in the actual leadership. So Yeah, absolutely. They nothing about us without us so yeah exactly they should be in charge of their own stories and they know what's best for their communities and yeah. can prioritize what uh, what works yeah so shelby let me know what you got next for us yeah we're going to continue on this uh thread of an intersectional environmentalism yeah, and talk it. about a country in southeastern africa called malawi okay malawi is often called the warm heart of africa um <laughs> and it is a landlocked country with about 19 million people um, and I'm referencing specifically a story from the New York Times. I had to cover it when I saw the title was Meet the Climate Hackers of Malawi. The hackers? What the kind of hackers are we talking? Uh, well, my first thought was like that they were using technologies mm. like AI yeah. to hack the climate. But it's not quite like that. But we'll, we'll get more into it. I would love it. to hear it, yeah. Yeah, so this is largely an agrarian society. People mm -hmm. are focused on agriculture. Um, there is some subsistence farming, so folks who are growing food for themselves and their families, and that's what they do for um, their own like food. Um, but there's also a lot of cash crops. And so these are crops that aren't necessarily meant to make your family thrive, to feed your family, yeah. um, but to make money for someone okay. else in most cases. So, so like for our American viewers, it was maybe like the, the tobacco crops that you couldn't really eat, but they would sell for a lot of money or something like that? Exactly. Yeah. Tobacco is a major crop, so is maize mm. or corn. Um, and most of this has come from foreign investors. Mm. So in this article that I from referencing today, they talked with a bunch of indigenous folks who are from Malawi, 
were born in Malawi are from their families go back yeah. generations yeah. Um, talking about essentially how it was how it is and how it's going to be so how it was before we had sort of foreign investment, um, foreign meddling, you might say, mm. was people growing food that would serve themselves and their communities. Traditionally, a lot of millet, sorghum, yams, things that grow really well in the region, things you can eat. Those are some hearty things that you named off there. <laughs> yeah. And they're like also really nutritionally dense. Oh, yeah, so exactly. In a place where maybe you aren't going to grow all sorts of things, those things will keep you full. Um, yeah. They make sense for the diet, the culture, the lifestyle of Malawi. Yeah. Then we saw foreign actors coming in and saying, you're so good at agriculture. Um, <laughs> we think you should grow these other things. Um, okay. And we'll pay you for that. So we're, gonna, we're going to use your labor. Then we're going to go sell it for a lot more money somewhere else. Right. So in a place that's largely, largely agrarian, mm -hmm. There's still huge amounts of malnutrition, food insecurity, poverty, childhood death, infant mortality, wow. which isn't what I think of when I think of being in a place where there's tons of crops around, um, but those crops aren't really things that you can eat. And they're also things that are not really set for the climate as it exists in Malawi today. So mm -hmm. for example, maize doesn't really survive really well when there's drought. Yeah because of global climate factors, which Malawi has almost nothing to do with as a country that has the carbon footprint of almost nothing, drought is more and more common. So not only are they growing things that aren't a part of their cultural diet and aren't really meant to feed their families in the first place, they're meant to be shipped out to other people, they also are losing their crops. Wow. So even when they do make money and they sell their cash crops, there's not a lot of food around that they can buy with their money. Is that kind of what you're telling me? Yeah, not a lot of food that you can buy. And then also, who bears the brunt if you lose your crop? Someone else owns it. Yeah. Probably a foreign investor owns the the function of that farm. Yeah. But there's not the same kind of insurance as we might see here. Mm -hmm. It's the farmer's fault, in heavy air quotes, if that crop is lost. And so that means that they're just not making money. And the foreign investor maybe loses a little bit of profit, but they probably can still go buy food at the grocery store, whereas the farmer in Malawi is now not making money to be able to feed their family from the limited yeah. supply of food that's available in general. It all makes sense. Yeah, so that's all the bad news. Um, well, all the ones I'm gonna tell you about today. Um, <laughs> but the good news is that as communities tend to do, they work to thrive. And so when I talked about climate hacking at the beginning, I was actually talking about the idea that local farmers are working to sort of hack the system and grow in ways that are more sustainable, that grows more food, that's able to better feed themselves and their communities. So things like going back to growing crops that are more traditionally grown in the area in segments of the land that aren't owned by foreign investors. Um, there was a quote from a, a local that really stood out to me, which was, giving up means you don't have food, which hit me hard because if I'm yeah. doing my job day to day and we don't get a grant that I apply for or I messed up a report or just had a bad meeting, it feels bad for a minute and then I move on. In this case, 
You're hungry at night. Yeah, you're hungry at night. Jeez. And so it's another example of intersectional environmentalism because climate change is affecting this community or the many communities in Malawi, particularly agricultural communities. And they're not to blame for the weather changing and the climate changing where they live. They're seeing droughts, they're seeing cyclones, um, and they're not the ones that are putting out the carbon footprint that's creating that issue. Yeah. What do you think about all that, Anton? I mean, it's a little bit heavy, but I think uh, climate, being a climate realist, uh, we know that these things are only going to continue to accelerate. These problems are going to compound and get worse. And so... We have to find solutions as, uh, as the United States, as uh, developed nations come together, the UN, to figure these things out and solve these problems. Yeah, the UN themselves say that there's not enough uh, global investment in working on food shortages. Uh, we know that, and particularly in Malawi, we could see more foreign investment that's actually investing in local farmers to grow foods for themselves would be uh, really effective compared to foreign investment in cash crops that are not feeding local farmers. Um, It goes back to what we just talked about, this idea that uh, communities should be speaking for themselves. This community said, we're not going to stick with the status quo. We're going to find other ways to make this work for us. We're going to hack the system. We're going to grow new things in new ways. Um, and so far, there's been some progress, but it's certainly not enough. Um, we all have to keep in mind that actions that we take here in the U.S., actions yeah. that China takes in China that yeah. create this huge output are affecting communities a world away. Yeah. Well said. I couldn't have said it better myself, Shelby. <laughs> well, let's let's move on to someone else who's making a splash and sort of taking their future into their own hands. Yeah, so that's that's a great segue into talking a little bit about an indigenous activist, Tara Hauska. Uh, she lives in the United States, and she is from uh, one of the indigenous tribes. Uh, I can't pronounce it really well, so uh, I'm going to try. Hauchichinga. Hauchiching, whoever can uh, comment and let us know how to say that, please, please, uh, please give me the tips. So Arcadia posted a blog about uh, seven different indigenous climate activists. Uh, I wanted to highlight Tara Hauska. Uh, she's not only a lawyer who has taken on uh, the system from a legal standpoint, she's a community organizer. Um, she's the co-founder of Not Your Mascots, what I, which I wanted to mention. That's like some uh, organization that isn't really fond of Native Americans being used in like... Uh, as a mascot. As a mascot. Yes. Uh, we were, our team in Cleveland was formerly the Cleveland Indians. Mm-hmm. Now changed thanks to activists like Tara. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, now we're the Guardians, which is way better. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and also, uh, Tara fought for, uh, fought against the Dakota access pipeline. So she's got quite an extensive resume, a lot under her, a lot under her belt. It's Uh, interesting that you mentioned the Dakota access pipeline in particular, especially since we're talking about intersectionalism, because I've never heard of Tara, unfortunately, but I do remember the Dakota access pipeline. And I remember seeing a lot of celebrities being talked about as like being out there protesting, being willing to get arrested. And that's fine. Like I'm happy to have their support, but Seems like Tara might have been a person to uh, 
throw our support behind in a yes. different Yeah. Exactly. Tara's so much more impressive than all those other celebrities. Yeah, who just get to show up for the picture. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thank you. Keep showing up. Use your platform or whatever. But like, yeah. let's talk about Tara. <laughs> I know. And I think that's that's a theme that a lot of indigenous environmentalists face. Like, yes. how, how many can we really name between the both of us? How many indigenous environmental activists can we name just off the top of our head? Probably not very many, which is mm-hmm. which is unfortunate. I, the only person that comes to mind for me is the writer Robin Wall Kimmerer, and I'm not sure yeah. she'd call herself an environmental activist so much as a botanist and an indigenous yeah. woman who loves plants, and uh, and that's just one person, whereas I can name probably a lot of white environmental activists, like Greta Thunberg comes to mind. Yeah. That's great. They should all keep doing their work, but I probably should be more well-informed about indigenous and, activists. And the media should be covering these people more. Yes. Also as well, right? That's us. <laughs> That's us. <laughs> We're doing it, kind of. Um, well, Tara is doing something really cool. She's creating a camp where she's actually nurturing activists in Minnesota. I want to go to camp. Yeah, I know. Sounds kind of fun, right? <laughs> yeah. She's, out, she's hosting uh, Ojibwe language classes. She's conducting training, holding retreats, and just teaching people how to be activists in their communities. I think that is so cool. We need more people on the front lines being able to protest, organize communities, and create dialogue with decision makers. Yes, I love this. I kind of want to go back. You said she's a lawyer, right? Yeah. So I love that she's using legal systems of like our Western world to yeah. like push for things that are important to her, like yeah. using the systems that exist. Mm-hmm. And then also just using this like grassroots knowledge that she's built up as a community member and community organizer to share that and kind of pass her knowledge down. That feels more like what we think about when we think about more traditional um, yeah. indigenous activism and environmentalism is like shared stories. So I love to see that she's using both because both matter. There are real systems in place that create barriers and make things harder to achieve our climate goals. And she's also like, the power of the courts is one thing, the power of people is another thing. So I'm going to get more people lined up to do this. That's amazing. Yeah, it's it's so cool. She's a total double threat. And to kind of of, uh, keep the ball rolling on that same aspect, she actually served as the Native American advisor to the Bernie Sanders campaign in Mm. 2016. Um, She's quoted saying that Uh, I'm going to quote her directly. They aren't the end-all be-all, referring to presidential campaigns. I don't really look at the – I'm botching it. I I don't really look as much to those top-level solutions. And she's she's kind of talking about um, instead of worrying so much about uh, the presidents and the the people who are elected, which are important. She would definitely say they're important – she, she loves seeing people of all kinds come together and stand shoulder to shoulder and realizing that they all have the same home. Uh, we're all kind of in this together to protect the environment. That's, that's what really makes her smile. Yeah. And as somebody who loves talking about community organizing, I think that's special. Our decision makers are so important, uh, but our decision makers aren't going to move without the voters and the people coming together. Absolutely. Um, it's people end up voting (laughs) to put these legislators into place. So people have to be engaged first before we can even talk about what a legislator is able to do. And legislators are able to do things without us if we're not paying attention. So uh, we're seeing it in Ohio now, lots of things coming up that are trying to decrease the value of your vote. And Ohio's not the only place that's experienced things like this. So I love that this is a person who's empowering people, that Tara says, like, 
your local politics matter, your local policies matter, because those things mm -hmm. you have more power in. I can call city council members from our area on the phone and they'll talk to me in a way that I'll never have access to the president. Yeah, 100%. So I think if you're wanting to get involved in your own community, uh, maybe you should go to uh, Tara's camp and learn a little bit about <laughs> becoming an, uh, an activist. I think it'd be kind of cool. I mean, I don't know if it's actually open. That was, <laughs> that was kind of a joke, but didn't land. Sorry. Well, we know we can, add, <laughs> we can add some notes about it in the show notes and talk more about that or other ways that people can get involved. I mean, you're with Buckeye Environmental Network. And so I know that you talked about doing trainings that are sort of similar to this 100%. in other neighborhoods. So Tara's great, love what she's doing, and there are probably other ways that people can learn more about how to get involved. Yeah, 100%. Awesome. Well, Shelby, thank you so much for talking all things green with me today. How about you let our viewers know how they can stay in touch? I'd be happy to. If you'd like to stay connected to us, please be sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok at One Planet Media. That's O-N-E-1. If you'd like to re-watch full episodes, check out our YouTube channel, All Things Green Show. You can find all of our sources for today's episodes in our show notes. We'll be back the same time this Thursday to bring you more news. Thank you so much for being a part of the global sustainability movement.